Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your LifeQuest Liberty host, Charles Mills. When Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, told me the topic for today's broadcast, I thought, wow, how are they connected? He wanted to discuss the Old Testament God and religious liberty. So I, like you, am looking forward to what he has to say. Lincoln, the Old Testament God is hard enough to comprehend in the light of how Jesus portrayed him in the New Testament. What do we need to know? Well, we need to know more than we'll ever know. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Because I, I, I need to give this disclaimer at the beginning. Who am I to say that I can explain God? Job, who in a sense of being a follower of God, knew him pretty well. Job was brought to task by God at the end of, of his troubles, and God says, who are you? You know, you're questioning me. He says, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? You know, and Job says, I, I, I spoke of things I didn't know. He says, you know, I humble myself, you know. So we need to be careful. But I, I'm very sure that there's, there's a need to at least uh, reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the New Testament and to think critically about God and not just presume on him, or worse, as many non-Christians and non-religious people do, ha- have a thoroughly uh, tangled view of God that misrepresents him. Uh, let me tell you why I-, I wanted to talk about this today. Yeah. This is a radio program, and invisibly or, or, or without the visible connection to people, we're reaching out and talking, but luckily I, I have a chance to-, to have a TV program, Liberty Insider, and, and as well as that, here where I work at the General Conference of Seventh Adventists, I participate from time to time in another program put on by fellow religious liberty workers called Faith and Freedom. Last week, we had a roundtable discussion among several of uh, the persecutory impulse was the title, and it was taken directly from a series of articles in Liberty Magazine uh, about a year ago. We were talking about persecution. We agreed very quickly that Pretty much all religions persecute. It's a sad reality of life, and and it can be tied up as much to human nature as the view of the divine, but the facts are all religions do it. But then we started focusing more in on on the biblical uh, God for Judaism, Christianity, and quickly I could tell that, that all of us, not just me, but there were four of us, we were really struggling and beating the air to try to reconcile the biblical account with a religious liberty scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, on religious liberty, we're saying everybody has the right to choose. They, they shouldn't be restricted in any way. And, and nobody can tell anyone else what to think. And, you know, and we certainly don't persecute. We don't visit violence in other people. We're condemning, say, the, the Saudis for executing someone for changing their, their religion. We, we uh, uh, are down on the Pakistanis for... Uh, taking someone to court for for either changing their religion or or speaking badly Mm -hmm. of Islam. We don't hear so much of it of Christianity anymore, but in the Middle Ages, Christianity did much the same stuff, and they quoted the Old Testament big time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, we really need to, to, to look more closely at this. The God of the Old Testament cannot be seen as sort of a distant, different God than Jesus of the New Testament. You've got serious problems if you 
as many Christians do, sort of put a sharp cleaver between the two testaments and talk glowingly of Jesus while you haven't reconciled this, <laughs> this rather formidable and perhaps bloodthirsty God of the Old Testament. You have to realize this, this punitive view of God is very invasive when you have him wrathing and his anger being kindled and all these things happening. So I can understand why people, and I would have to say that I grew up with that same concept, look at the God of the Old Testament in that way. Wouldn't we say, can't we possibly say that it was Christ's intent, one of Christ's intent, to come and clarify God's character to a world that... We have to admit, when Christ walked this earth, didn't even recognize God. They had been so immersed in the God of the Old Testament that when the actual God himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, started walking the dusty paths, not a soul recognized him. They did not know who he was. Well, that's true, but even as you say it, it sounds suspiciously like God's going to now present a, a new face. It's sort of like a political makeover, and hmm. and, and mm -hmm. Jesus comes giving a, a touchy-feely, very friendly version of God, which is at, at odds with the Old Testament. Yeah, It's true, Jesus must be seen as clarifying something about God's intention. But but if you don't really get into the nitty-gritty, it's irreconcilable between God. For example, I was reading the story the other day after the uh, funny incident of, of Balaam of the Midianites, mm -hmm. their prophet, mm -hmm. wanting to curse the Israelites, but God moved on him to bless them. Yeah. Um, most people know that story if they've gone to, to Sunday school or, or Sabbath school at all. But very few people realize that, that Balaam and, and Balak, the king, took another tack and subverted the children of Israel by enticing them to their gods and, and to immorality. And so there was some extreme scenes of immorality that followed that. Yes. There was a scene where the grandson of Aaron, the priest, the brother of Moses, actually came and speared a leader in, in Israel and a Midianite woman through their body. And God said, this is a wonderful thing. It'll be counted for, for righteousness forever. <laughs> it's enshrined in a psalm in the Bible. But what I hadn't even noticed much till the other day, then a few verses later, that same uh, priest, the son of the, of the high priest, was, was uh, leading an army that Moses raised at God's directions. God said, before you die, you must kill the Midianites. Mm. And so 12,000 soldiers, a 1,000 from each tribe, headed off, and they exterminated the Midianites. But foolishly, they saved some of the women and children. When they came back, Moses told them off. And so they killed all of the uh, boy children and all of the women who had uh, known men. That were left, and the rest were slavery. That was at God's expressed command. And as I said, the grandson of, of Aaron that, that did the killing, great commendation from God, and, and God said, because of him, he had my anger, he stayed his hand, he was slaying the Israelites themselves in punishment, and he stayed his hand and didn't kill anymore. Well, now, you, you can do as some higher critical readers of the Bible do and say, well, that was just a cultural expectation. Here was a bloodthirsty leader, Moses, uh, rough and ready times. They wanted to do the will of God, and so they took rough justice, but this is not God. Mm -hmm. Well, you have a huge problem with that because then the Bible becomes nothing more than, than sort of a collection of myths and, and anthropological uh, distortions of a larger spiritual meaning. I believe we should take the Bible pretty much from what it says. And when uh, uh, there were divine evidences that God was leading Israel and, and God was speaking quite openly, sometimes to the whole group, 
it's sort of like UFO appearances. Yes. If, if if a lot of people see something, it's hard to to say, well, this is just one misguided individual. Yeah. They all heard the voice, yeah. as Peter uh, said. You know, the, they heard the oracles of God. So that there was not much uh, excuse. So clearly God was doing something that we find hard to reconcile. But those that understand the, the, what Adventists sometimes call the great controversy know that he was executing direct judgment. Mm-hmm. And this is where we really get into the, the hard to understand side of God. God is not and could never be in my view, and from my reading of the Bible, he could never be a sort of a touchy-feely, hail-fellow, well-met human being as we are. It's, it's a miracle of the ages that he was able to express himself into a human form as the man Jesus with the divine infusion so that he could, he could experience what we experience. But we shouldn't confuse that with the Ancient of Days who dwells in unapproachable glory where the cherubim shield their eyes and even the angels in heavens cannot look upon his glory. He is the ultimate other. Hmm. You know, Lincoln, there is an argument, and I'll share it with you now, and I'm very curious to know what you're going to say about this, where Christ himself seemed to be contradicting an Old Testament version of himself. It took place in the Sermon on the Mount, and Christ told his listeners, You have heard it said, eye for an eye, and tooth for a tooth. This is in Matthew 5. And he was referring to a list of commands in the book of Exodus that God had handed down, telling the children of Israel how to react to things that happen in their lives. And he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus looks out over the multitude there on the hillside, and he says, But I say, love your enemies, do good to them that harm you. And when I read that, I sort of said under my breath, "Um, uh, Jesus, wasn't that you giving the commands in Exodus? Didn't you say an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth? Did you just correct yourself? What do you say about that? Well, these are these are difficult things, and, and and part of the answer is that there were rules of Moses, laws of Moses that were given at that time, with God's encouragement, because yes. God given the Ten Commandments and some very specific rules beyond the Ten Commandments. Yes. But as well as that, there were the laws of Moses that were designed to uh, undergird the principles God was projecting to this rough and ready multitude. Mm-hmm. The principle of justice is very plain. The principle of charity was not quite so plain. And and Jesus himself, when he spoke about divorce from those times, he says it was because of hardness of your heart that Moses gave you, uh, you know, these requirements. But he says, you know, no divorce unless there's actually been a physical act of infidelity. So Jesus, again, extended it further. Mm -hmm. Remember, there is justice. It's quite plain that the punishment, in fact, I'll quote Ellen White writing to Seventh-day Adventist once. Mm -hmm. She made a statement. She says, the punishment for sin is the same that it always has been, death. There has to be a death. Mm -hmm. Well, now in the New Testament dispensation, after God has done an amazing uh, uh, legal act on our behalf, is that we can die vicariously in his death and then spiritually into our old self internally and then we pass this judgment. But Mm -hmm. God will exact an eye for an eye. If somebody harms somebody, as it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm trying to connect with the the whole plan of salvation and, and between the Old and the New Testament. It's worth remembering. 
the Old Testament has all these uh, hard-headed, if you like, yes, outlines of how God acts towards evil. Yeah. But most people haven't noticed or haven't thought it significant that the New Testament ends the same way. Mm-hmm. Revelation is about 90% a restatement of the Old Testament, and it, it details, sometimes in lurid detail, how God will resolve this problem of making a final and absolute and, and, and destructive end to evil. So it's no different than when he sent his proxies, the, the children of Israel, under the theocracy into Canaan to, to get rid of these tribes. No different from when he sends his angels out, his destroying angels, to absolutely wipe the wicked from the face of the earth. And it says they will be dust under your feet. That's right. That's right. Where uh, something has changed for us, I think, between those times and now, is that, uh, when, first of all, not under a theocracy, not under uh, direct prophetic instruction, as they were even after the theocratic regime. We are at a time when God has revealed himself more fully and the judgment is reserved and we are not authorized to act that way. Hmm. But God hasn't changed, and I believe, I'm trying to think who is, is it Paul that says that it is a fearsome thing yes. to fall into the hands of an angry God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to put ourselves on the wrong side of God. Now, when we're talking about religious liberty, it sort of broadens in a more uh, enlightenment or philosophical way. I don't think it's a contradiction on religious liberty that I could simultaneously read the Bible that we're talking about now and have a view of God and know where it will all end up and be convinced that I understand truth or at least I'm committing myself to a revealed truth that I can simultaneously hold that, and yet when I look around me at all of the plethora of belief systems in the world, I can say, yes, they're probably wrong, and if they pursue them, people are going to come to a bad end, but I will give those people the full right and freedom, since I am not God, Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. their way spiritually and and hope that they find God, and and me as an individual, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to witness with the faith that I have. But on the religious liberty construct, they are to be absolutely freed up to make a bad choice and maybe even come to a bad end result. But I cannot compel them, and I cannot diminish their right to make a bad choice, Mm. even if they come to a very bad end. That's for God at the Day of Judgment, which uh, in our days is reserved. It may be very soon, but it's a time that's reserved, where uh, at the beginning, God uh, was choosing to exercise it momentarily. President Theodore Roosevelt once said, I hold that in this country there must be complete severance of church and state, that public money shall not be used for the purpose of advancing any particular creed, and therefore that the public schools shall be non-sectarian and no public monies appropriated for sectarian schools. Roosevelt understood the importance of religious freedom. A message from your friends at www.libertymagazine.org. Something that I... I have a burden to talk about here, too, is, is, is an idea that I first saw on public television. They had a wonderful series. Mm-hmm. I like public television in general. Sure. And they had a wonderful series recently about the Old Testament. 
And on one of the sequences, about six of them sat down around a table, and, and there were several doctors of theology and philosophers and so on, and they looked at the Old Testament supposedly just at the text itself without any uh, other reference point mm -hmm. and analyzed it how God was presented. And they came to an interesting conclusion, which I don't think is unnatural, but it's incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at the evidence in the Bible, they came to the conclusion that God matured and grew hmm. as the story developed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Like he was a rather vindictive, cruel, yeah. even flighty God uh, yeah. early on, and he matured he and stabilized. Better. Oh, my. <laughs> oh my. Well, I think the reverse is sort of true. What's obvious is that mankind, while morally, we're, we're, I think we're on a downward trajectory, yes. that socially mankind started off as rather disorganized, often uh, violent gatherings of people, like Sodom and Gomorrah, for mm -hmm. example, and... Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Nimrod City there, what became Babylon. You know, these were, you know, dog-eat-dog -dog type environments, one tribe warring against the other. Uh, and in this context, where there was gross immorality, where there was daily violence, bestiality, not a centralized authority as we have with civil governments in most countries today, you know, God had to counter this rough justice with a rough order of his own. The principles were still the same, but it was broad strokes. Mm -hmm. And as God worked with the people, and then he chose the descendants of Abraham, as he worked with them, he progressively explained why they were to do these things. He didn't change his truth. Like it was always obedience. Yes. Always said, you're a slave to God or you're a slave to self and satanic impulse. And he wanted you to come under him. But more and more he explained that the, that the real goal was to share the, the divine nature, not just to do it because he said it. It's a little bit like the way you, you train children. Yeah. And initially, because they're of limited intelligence and experience, it's do it, as I say, because it's your parent, you must do it. <laughs> you, you want to get to that point where, where they obey because they love you, they understand now through comprehension that what you're saying, even if at the time it seems odd, that overall they know you want their best interest. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure God was doing that with Israel. And you can see social development. Anthropologists know it absolutely. You know, they might try to take it back to cavemen and all the rest, which yes. is a bit bizarre. But there's clearly been social development from those early days up through the Middle Ages, even the Dark Ages, while it was morally dark. There was social development. Man has been organizing, becoming more sophisticated. And I think coincidental with that, God has, has revealed the subtleties of his position, mm. where early on he was a, a, you could even say, a harsher taskmaster. But the principle is the same, and that's why at the very end of it all, he will execute judgment in a way that might seem half, harsh if you're a sinner, but will seem totally liberating if you're someone that's, opened up to his purposes and has uh, communicated with the divine, and now he's going to clear things away so that sweetness and light will live forever. Yeah. Yeah. I think looked at correctly, God is not this uh, bloodthirsty creature, but uh, by the same token, I myself think that unless you look narrowly, as we're called to, uh, on the, the person of Jesus, where he was a, a, you know, a, the incarnation in a human form of God, but that God in his overall dealings, he will always remain this other. It impressed upon me uh, recently. I watched another television program with my children, 
and they were re-examining Einstein's theories and, and some of the recent developments that have not superseded Einstein, but they've gone, you know, in, in direction, or not in directions, but gone further than Einstein imagined, extrapolating from his basic views. And, and they've just a few days ago discovered what they facetiously call the God particle. Yes, yeah, I read about that, yes. Uh, which is a misnomer because they're not finding God that way. What they're finding, though, is they're going below the atomic level, subatomic and even sometimes semi-invisible particles. But they're finding, as they said there, that even empty space, which they thought before was a vacuum, is absolutely densely packed with matter, not our matter, but other matter. My, my. <laughs> and, and, and they made one comment that I... I, I took it almost poetically. They said that in this space, when they go into it and really check on it, and it was partly as a result of this collider experiment, mm -hmm. they say that, that it's highly charged. It's just like random firing, like fireworks going off, energy just blossoming everywhere. And I thought Gerald Manley Hopkins, the Roman Catholic priest poet, in one of his poems called God's Grandeur, he said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Mm. And, and we have to recognize that, that in ways even the scientists could never even begin to explain this immense universe that grows faster than our inquiry and this complicated, layered uh, realities, because they already know there's not just one reality, that all of this, by definition, God created it, God lives in it, it helps to describe God, and we're almost just, you know, we're just the tiniest speck yes, yes. of it, not just in size, but even in kind, you know, it says in the Bible that there are the, the spirits, these divine creatures. I mean, they're on such a different plane that our little reality and our sense of right or wrong. I mean, God tells us morality. But I mean, when we say, you know, how could a just God do this? We don't know the whole picture. We don't know the, the structure of the universe that he's trying to set it right and how that plays into it. And, and I think to a certain degree, we need to just... And the Muslims do this, I think, sometimes mindlessly. But we have to acknowledge God is right because he is God. Mm -hmm. we, we shouldn't have to question him because he seems a little harsh at times or other times we don't understand his logic. We should understand what he's chosen to reveal to us and then hold in abeyance the rest as, as he is the divine other. Mm. You know, in my mind, there is a danger to going too far into the Old Testament in your belief of God, because I can guarantee you that terrorists use the Old Testament God and his vengeance and his wrath as a motivator for them to do what they do. I can guarantee you that on the mind of the people that flew the airplanes into the World Trade Center was that God. The God who, who seeks vengeance, the God who brings wrath, whose anger is kindled and who burns, they were acting in God's stead, acting as they believe God acts when they did those acts. And so we have to really, like you say, we have to, we have to soften God with the truth we find in the New Testament, or we're going to be just like the terrorists to say, okay, this is God. If I act this way, I'm acting God-like. There's a danger there. Absolutely. I mean, I think we now know enough about 9-11 that, that these men had very mixed motives, but yes. they, they, they had a lot of the engine of their motivation, sure. yes, from, from this harsh view of sort of an Old Testament God. I mean, he's the God of Islam. And, and in my view, and I've thought about this the last few days, I think there's very strong textual evidence that, that uh, Muhammad conflated 
the opposition and, 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 the, and the actual warfare that he was waging with the Meccan tribes mm-hmm. for the advancement of his belief systems. He conflated that with the view of God and God's justice and, and vindictiveness and so on. Yes. I've actually read articles and even spoken to some Muslims who, and I think they do it misguidedly, try to reconcile the Quran by dividing it into uh, segments based on Muhammad's own experience. And it's there hmm. because uh, he, he was very harsh in his presentation of God early on when he was fighting these wars to enlarge his religion. Yes. Once he was established, uh, Muhammad himself became far more conciliatory and, and projected that on his God. So we need to be careful we don't do that today with Christianity, that, that we're not under threat. And, 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 and since we're in a modern, certainly in the United States, we're in a modern uh, human rights environment that we don't suddenly conveniently have, have a God that fits nicely within that. Yeah. There might be some times when someone under a faith conviction, perhaps like Phineas, does something extraordinary on God's behalf, they're moved by him, that will have a civil penalty. I wouldn't encourage them toward that. But there have been those times, and they need to understand they will pay the penalty. Yes, yes. Uh, Christ said that there, there will, everybody that lives a godly life will suffer persecution. And if we do things that in the civil construct are against uh, what the civil society sees as the public good, even if we think we're right, we shouldn't imagine that we get a pass. We might be a martyr, or, or quoting these guys on 9-11, we, we might be a misguided religious fanatic who does violent things thinking they're acting in God. Mm-hmm. There's a matter of conscience and, 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 and a lot of contextual subtleties that lie between the one horrifying example and the other person dedicated to following God no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and I wouldn't say, like to say in every case where, where it lies, but we know in the extremes, no religionist, I think even a... A rational Muslim is going to say that it's a good thing to kill your fellow men just because you think you're doing the will of God. But sometimes people of faith stirred to righteous indignation will will not so much kill, but will do things that don't play well in in, in civil society. But we know as Christians, and, and you mentioned it earlier, that Jesus was at great pains to explain the inner spiritual workings of God's intention. He he said. For example, you abuse a child, you're going to be th- better to be th- thrown into the bottom of the sea than what God will do to you. Yeah. So, you know, there is a punishment to come, but, but we're not really charged to take it all on ourselves now. But we can't absolutely dismiss that God sometimes calls on people to do things that are quite extraordinarily disruptive to mm-hmm. civil society. I kind of think of Jesus as the pressure valve uh, when things get a little bit out of hand and when we think certain things of God and our, our pressure begins to build and we want to act in that Old Testament way. Along comes Jesus and the valve opens and we have flooded into our system the, the love and the forgiveness and the tolerance that Jesus demonstrated. And I think we need to have that as well in our daily life and in our religious freedom. We, we want to have the strength of God and the pressure valve of, of, of Jesus. Would, would I be on the right track if I said that? Absolutely. Okay. And, if you, and if you look at the Old Testament, you can carve away these times for extraordinary reasons of God's planning for mankind and need to purify whole peoples and so on. But in between, if you look at it, he was calling his people to tolerance, to yes, inclusion. Yes. They were to, to bring the stranger into their gates. 
Well, we've had a wonderful discussion today. Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, thank you very much for opening our eyes to these truths, and we look forward to more discussions on this topic. Lincoln, thank you very much. You're welcome. And listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Lincoln Steed inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. You've been listening to LifeQuest Liberty. To further explore the issues discussed on today's program, visit www.LibertyMagazine.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of religious freedom burning in your heart today.